Good morning, everyone. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. Um, if you've got a Bible, could you go to Micah chapter 5, the book of Micah chapter 5. We will get there momentarily. Before we get into that, I just want to publicly acknowledge our teams this morning who, when they found out that there was water in the fuse box, so we couldn't plug things in because water and electricity apparently aren't friends, and they had set up the entire hall ready for you. And then it was like, no, we've got to move it all. They packed it all down, uh, set up team, worship team, and then a bunch of people just joined in and helped. So thank you very much. Can we just clap them? They were awesome. And so we had to change everything, and so we're in here, and you guys are fantastic and brilliant, and so well done uh, for that. And thank you all of you guys for fighting your way in here and just getting settled and everything like that. Right, Micah chapter 5. Now we're in our series, It's Time, we're studying... Uh, the book of Micah. We've only got a couple more weeks to go when we hit Micah chapter 7, and that will be the end of our series. We've made it up to chapter 5 today, which is what we're going to look at. If you've missed any of the previous stuff, you can go and catch up. The sermons are online. They're on our website. You can just um, have a listen there. Just as a reminder of context uh, for what's happening is the prophet Micah who has been inspired by the Lord to speak to his people, he's speaking into a context where the people of God are not in a good place because they have entered the promised land. They have settled in the promised land that was promised way back to under Abraham. And then Moses leads them out of slavery in Egypt. And then Joshua leads them into the promised land. They settle. Um, and then they have the kings. They have Saul. Then they have David. Then they have Solomon. And at that point, the nation of Israel reaches its highest point in terms of the blessing of God on his people and everything like that. But after Solomon, it all goes horribly wrong. The kingdom split. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and there is animosity, and the people of God are chasing after idols, false worship, and into this situation, God sends his prophets to speak, to call his people back to worship, to honor the covenant they made in Mount Sinai, back in Exodus, and so Micah is one of these men sent by God to speak to his people, and he's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel and to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he is warning them that God's judgment is coming because of their sin. And we know historically that the kingdom of uh, Israel in the north was destroyed in 722 BC by Assyria, the kind of the superpower at the time. And Micah is prophesying in that season. He actually witnesses that. And the Syrians, they come and they destroy Israel and then they come south into Judah and they come right up to the gates of Jerusalem, the capital in the south. And into that, he's saying, he's calling to his people, you've sinned, and there's corruption throughout the nation we've seen, and he is calling them back to worship of God and repentance and faith and remembering of the covenant. And what happens in the book of Micah, it's split into three sections, uh, the first two chapters, then chapters three, four, and five, and then chapters six and seven, and they're like cycles, and each cycle begins with the word here. So if you look at the, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 1, and then chapter 6, verse 1, the prophet calls the people of God to hear the message. And it's not just listen to the message, oh, I heard that. No, it's actually hear and respond. There is action to be taken. And so we're in chapter 5. We're at the end of the second cycle. 
So we've had the chapter one and two is the first cycle. Chapter three, four, and five is the second cycle. And they go in the same kind of order. They talk about judgment of God on his people for their sin. But then there is a message of hope at the end of salvation that God will ultimately save and redeem his people. And the Lord is, uh, the prophet is speaking into this time. And we call this series, It's Time, because it's time for action. It's time for repentance. It's time for hope. It's time for preaching. It's time for the spirit we've seen. And today we're going to look at chapter five when it's time for Jesus. Now, what we've got in this section that we're going to read in a moment is some of the familiar stuff. Some of you, when we got into Michael, I don't know Michael, not familiar with Michael, but there's one section that is familiar to most people because it associates with Christmas that's coming. So you're going to hear one of the Christmas things. I think I've heard that before. That's because it's a Christmas reading. And so that's what we're going to do today. So big idea. Jesus came to deliver, restore, and sanctify his people. Jesus came to deliver, restore, and sanctify his people. And what we're going to be looking at in chapter 5 is the message of the prophet who is talking about a coming king. The kings at the time were bad. The kings in, the Israel, uh, in Israel, in the north kingdom, they were all bad. The kings in the southern kingdom were mostly bad. There were one or two good kings that came up, but it was just bad. There was corruption. And he's saying there is a king who's coming who is the king, the king of kings, the ultimate, the king, the ones, God's promised king. And that's what we're going to look at today in this chapter. There is a king coming who delivers, who restores, and who sanctifies his people. So if you've got Micah chapter 1, let's read the first few verses here. It says, Now muster your troops... O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Okay, verses 1 to 4, the coming king. Chapter 3, if you were around then... Micah had strong words to say to the people of God, particularly their leadership, particularly those in authority, the leaders of the nation, the priestly leaders, the kingly leaders, the judicial leaders. And we, what we saw was they were corrupt through and through. They were self-serving. They didn't look after the people. And the image that the prophet speaks was graphic. It was horrible of how the leaders treated their people. And what we have now is we have a contrast with the leaders of Judah who were bad and then this God's coming leader who is going to be the total opposite. And what Micah begins by doing, by looking forward to the siege of Jerusalem about 701 BC when the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They came south into Judah and we saw in chapter 1 all those places that were named that they destroyed on the way through to the capital city and they came up to the capital city and it was a picture of humiliation for the nation because the king was powerless to defend against everything that was coming through. 
And so there they were. And so there was the troops were to be mustered, but they were not stopping the enemy. And there was a siege laid. And it was like the king got a slap in the face. You cannot defend your people. You cannot defend your people because this oppressive, evil army has come to destroy them. But into that situation, the prophet speaks. Verse 2, he says, but you. So he's saying, Jerusalem, that's where the king is. That's where the palace is. That's where the temple is. That's where all the power and commerce is of a capital city that had walls. It had might. It had strength. But it was powerless to stop what was coming against the people of God. But then he he flips to Bethlehem. And he calls it Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah just means fruitful. And it was to delineate this from another Bethlehem, which is in the north. This Bethlehem was in the south, south of of Jerusalem. There was another Bethlehem in the north. And this Bethlehem is known because it was the birthplace of Israel's mightiest king, David. Bethlehem is known for David. And so he's speaking into this situation and he is saying that place, that tiny insignificant place out in the sticks, the total contrast of Jerusalem, the capital, mighty strong, this tiny little backward town, village, nowhere, that is where God is going to raise up a mighty leader. And the allusion obviously is to David. Israel's greatest king fought Goliath, defeated God's enemy. And he's saying, one is coming who is going to be great like David. He is going to come, and he says he's going to come forth from old. Because if we look back in our Old Testament to 2 Samuel, God made a promise to David, and he said, from one from your line will sit on the throne of my people forever. Forever. Now, we know who that is ultimately is fulfilled in Lord Jesus Christ. But at this point, it was like there's someone coming and the prophet is going back and saying, God is going to bring someone forth to lead his people. A mighty king is going to come like David, only better and more than David. And he's going to come from Bethlehem. But in the meantime, there's going to be labor pain. An image I can't fully identify with. I have witnessed twice, haven't personally been through it. But in the, the image here of labor pain is one of suffering, of one of pain. Can I have some amens from some of the ladies? <laughs> they know what this is like. But what happens at the end? There is new birth. There is joy. There is the arrival of a child. That, so the pain fades. And I know this, having not been through it, it's because... Ladies have more than one. So there's got to be a sense of it was worth it or you wouldn't have had the second one, would you? Just saying. Just preaching the text. That's all I'm doing. But the point here is saying there's going to be a time of travail with the oppression of these people because of their sin. But ultimately, the image at the end is there will be new life and there'll be new hope and new birth, which we know is a wonderful New Testament image of what the Lord Jesus does. One is coming to save his people. And he says he will call, the king will call his people back. We know there's going to be an exile in the future. The, the prophets already told them what's coming for his people. There's going to be pain and suffering, but ultimately it will work out good. Then he says, what's this king going to be like? What's the image? We've already seen this come up. 
And we know this is another David image. It says he will stand and shepherd his flock. This coming ruler is the total opposite of the rulers they have at the moment. Those who are self-seeking, self-serving, cannibalistic in their attitude. Ultimately, you're going to have a shepherd who is going to love and care for the sheep. He will keep them. He says they will dwell secure. That's what sheep need. They need a shepherd who will look after them and keep them safe from the wolves and the beasts of the countryside and bring them into the pen and sleep across the entrance so nothing can harm them. And he's saying there's a king who's coming who's going to shepherd his people in the majesty of the name of the Lord God. And this is just... The majesty refers to regal power and authority of a king. So he's going to come with power and authority. And that the name of the Lord is a reference to his character. We looked at that when we did the sermon series on his name from Exodus 34, 6, when it revealed the character of the Lord, gracious and uh, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who's coming. That's the one. And he will look after his people. And his name will be great to the ends of the earth. It won't just be in the little area they're in, in Israel, in Judah, in that part. It will spread out across the globe. This great and mighty king is coming that the prophet proclaims. So there's a coming king, something for his people to look forward to. And then what's the next thing? It says, well, this coming king, what will he do? It says he will deliver his people, verses 5 and 6. And it says, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land... And treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. And so the history of God's people, if you trace it through the Old Testament, is a history of oppression. A history of outside forces coming. It goes back to Egypt. And Moses led them out of slavery. They go into the land. If you follow the, the cycle through the book of Judges, there's constant oppression when forces coming out, then God sends deliverers. And then the latest one is Assyria, who is coming to oppress. And he, the, the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. They come south into Judah, right up to Jerusalem. And even in that situation, God still delivers his people, despite uh, their sin, his care for them. And Assyria is a representation of the enemies of God who come against God's people. In time, it's this nation, a very warlike, bloodthirsty, uh, pagan nation coming against God's people. And God says he'll raise up deliverers. The seven and eight is just a, it's a Hebrew way of basically saying that there are more than enough. So the seven shepherds and the eight princes is actually God is more than enough to deal with those who would come against his people. He has the power. He has the authority to rule over them from uh, Assyria. And Nimrod is another sort of another way of saying that, that the prophet uses sometimes different words to describe the same thing. And there will be triumph um, over his enemies. God will come and he will deliver his people. Whatever the oppression is, whatever, ultimately God will be victorious. And whatever they face with invading armies... God ultimately will triumph over them. No man-made power can stand against him. So he will, rest, um, he will um, deliver his people, but then he says he will also restore the remnant. Verses 7 to 9, it says this, And the remnants of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. 
in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a long, young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes down, uh, sorry, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. God will restore the remnants. God has been faithful to his people, and he will always be faithful to his people, and he will restore them, and he will bring them life and renewal from among the nations, and he will also then, in turn, bring condemnation and death on their enemies. Ultimately, the kingdom of God will be victorious. And so we have this remnant of Jacob, which is a reference to the people of God who've been oppressed. We know some go into exile. We know they return from exile, Ezra, Nehemiah, later. But it says God will restore his people. And he uses images. It's like dew and like showers on the grass. Now for us in the UK at this time of year, we have a lot of dew and a lot of showers. And most of the time we're like, (laughs) really? Again? More dew, more showers. But actually in the, the context it was spoken into a much more arid desert land, dew and showers were necessary for nourishment for the plants to grow, for crops to grow. And God is saying he will bring a restoration and a nourishment to his people. These are beautiful images that God's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore. You won't be beaten and broken and dry and arid. What will be? You'll be full of life and renewal and refreshment. And I will bring you out of places where you've been scattered. And I will restore you. And I will bless you. And you will be my people. And in turn, we've got the positive side, and then he mentions the negative side. Those who stood against you, those who have oppressed you, they in turn will be sent fleeing. It says like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Well, that's a pretty horrific image, isn't it? What would it be like if a a young lion got among a flock of sheep? That would probably be 18 certificate, wouldn't it? Ah, Blood. But he's saying, actually, the enemies of the people of God will not stand against the people of God. When they are filled with the Spirit of God, when they are living, ultimately their foes will come to nothing because God will lift up his hand against their adversaries and their enemies will be cut off, which is very dramatic language. When someone is cut off, they are utterly destroyed and banished. And God's saying, I'm your coming king. I'm going to deliver you. I will restore you and your enemies will be removed from you. There's a picture of the kingdom of God coming in his fullness When it says the Lord will lift up his hand, that's a symbol of power and authority which this king has. And he will utterly rout and destroy the enemies of his people. And the final thing we have there, verses 10 to 15, it says, So he will restore, sorry, he will deliver, he will restore, and he will sanctify his people. Verses 10 to 15, it says, And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will restore your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your land. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Okay, language shifts a little bit there. We've had a salvation oracle where God is proclaiming salvation to his people, deliverance, restoration, all really good stuff there. But then 
He now turns it around and he talks to his people. And the purpose of the people of God is to be set apart for God. The Lord is holy. In number, sheer tonnage in the Bible, that is the number one characteristic described about the Lord. He is holy. Above anything, by a country mile. He is holy. He is pure. He is other. And he is asking his people, who've been called by his name, to be holy as well. When we looked at the sermon series on Leviticus, that's what that was all about. God was holy, so how can my people approach me? How do they be set apart? That's what, how do they enter my presence? That's what that was all about. And so what God is doing now, he's now speaking to his people and saying, actually, I've delivered you from your enemies. I've restored you, but now I'm going to make sure that you live in a way set apart for me that you are sanctified, more like me. This isn't a way of God saying you have to earn my love and my uh, acceptance. They've already been loved and accepted. They've already been delivered and chosen and called out to be his people. He's saying, now, this is how you live apart from it. And the language which he used in the previous section to describe the enemies, saying, I will cut them off, he now uses that language for his people. He says, in that day, he declares, Lord, I will cut off your And so the same language is now being used against his own people. And if you go through that section, there is repetition of cut off. In my Bible, when I was studying it, I highlighted them all and thought, oh, repetition, emphasis. When we read that, we need to take note of it. And God is saying, I'm going to cut all these things off from you. What does he say? He says, sorcery, tellers of fortune, carved image, pillars, works of your hand, Asherah. All these are references to false worship that were amongst the people of God at the time, of what Micah and other prophets were speaking about, what God was saying. They are acts of false worship. They are, they are the, the cult prostitutes, the child sacrifice, the witchcraft, the idols that people would quite literally bow down to, works of their hands that were set up, the high places that we read about in our Old Testament. Where was I? False worship, that's where I was. (laughs) These evil things, all forbidden under God's law that the people of God were involved in. God says, I am going to cut those out of you. I'm going to take those from you. And it's quite graphic language that God is saying to his people. It's great to be delivered from your enemies. It's great to see them sent packing. It's great to be restored. But then God says, actually, my priority now is you. And I'm going to work on you. And what he's going to do is it says he's going to work on his people so that they are set apart. They are sanctified. They are made holy before him. He loves his people so much. He's not going to leave them where they are. I'm I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to draw you to myself. And it says as part of that there will be um, wrath on the nations around as well who... um, who were also involved in these processes. All the things mentioned there were practiced by the Assyrians uh, round about, and it talks about the anger and wrath of God, which a lot of people get uncomfortable with, but that's just God's right response to sin. We know we have that same thing. If something happens to you, your car is broken into and stolen, or your house is, or someone says something about you unfairly, your response 
is anger because that's not fair. That's not true. You've taken what's mine and God reacts the same way. And it talks about vengeance, which is not uh, the vindictive, cruel, human kind of vengeance. It's merely the outworking of God's justice on the nations for those who would not repent. And so ultimately, those who've oppressed God, people will be judged by him. So that's the end of the second cycle um, of the book of Micah. Let's look at a little bit of application for us and then I will finish and we will spend some time worshipping. Well, we're calling this series It's Time, and I want to just say today it's time for Jesus. It's time for Jesus. Micah speaks to God's people about the coming of a king who would be the ultimate fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. He prophesies that he would be born in David's hometown, links him to that. He would shepherd his people. I think it's fair to say it clearly points to one place. One person, the Lord Jesus. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, it actually quotes this verse from Micah. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. It quotes that bit about Bethlehem in the land of Judah, that God would bring out a ruler, a shepherd of his people. He would be the one who brings fulfillment and hope to all that God's people are. And when Jesus comes, he will deliver God's people. He will deliver God's people. And not as many of his followers thought, that he would deliver him from an earthly foreign power, which at the time was Rome, who were oppressing the nation. Jesus didn't come to deal with the Romans. He came to deal with a much greater problem, which was human sin. Man and woman are enslaved by sin, the Bible says. And so Jesus came, lived a perfect life, lived under the law, He then died in our place for our sin, rose bodily from death so that we might be free. That we might know freedom from sin and all might know those who put their faith and trust in him. And as the people of God, we are to respond to him in repentance as faith. As the coming king who comes to deliver God's people. And if you're not a Christian here, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to offer that to you that you today... Turn from living your own life, living your own way. Put your faith and trust in him and follow Jesus all the days of your life as the one who has come as the king of everything, the king to the ends of the earth. If you are a Christian here today, I want to offer you the opportunity to respond in faith and repentance and put your trust in him again. Because that is our response as believers daily. We respond to Jesus and say, yes, we turn from living our own way. We seek to live your way. We thank you for delivering us from the power of sin and we live in the good of that. The second thing Jesus came to do is that he would restore his people. And the danger is as Christians, we, we, we tick the first box, yes, he saved me from sin. I'm justified would be the biblical way of saying that. The penalty for sin is gone. But actually God came to restore. He came to restore fellowship. He came to restore relationship. Not only have you been justified, declared not guilty, you then have been adopted into a family. And in that family, you can know God as your Father in heaven. You can be full of the Holy Spirit now. You can walk in this life in fullness. You can know the Good Shepherd who leads you and cares for you. You can know healing and wholeness, and cleansing of sin, and peace in the midst of trials. doesn't mean the trials will go, and the pain and suffering go, but even in the face of them, you will know the presence of God. 
You can read his word and know him speaking to you. You can talk to him in prayer. All this is about the restoration of the fellowship. You have fellowship with other believers, which we express here as the gathered people of God. And then when we are scattered, we have our life groups and other connections we make. We can all know what it means to be restored into relationship. We know what it means to be forgiven and in turn to forgive as per the Lord's Prayer, we can share in joys and trials. We can give and receive. We are on mission into the world together, which is part of the restoration that we are to proclaim the good news of Jesus to others, to all around. Wherever we find ourselves, in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, in our colleges, in our social groups, we are a restored people together under God, on mission with him. And then finally, he will sanctify his people he lo- Look to the person next to you and say, God loves you so much, he's not leaving you like that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Some of you said it with more feeling than others, which reveals something in your hearts. As men and women, full of the Holy Spirit, We are to grow more and more like Jesus. We are to be transformed into his image. The Bible says we are talking about this year. We are to grow up into maturity and faith as we walk with him day by day, step by step. We confess our sins. We receive forgiveness. We repent. We go the other way. Our love for the world grows less and less each day as we see how empty and shallow it is. We see how offensive it is to God. We see all the sin and the pain, and we want nothing to do with it. And day by day, our love for Jesus and his kingdom and his people grow as we are being set apart day by day. And this, just to emphasize again, is not a way of earning God's favor. We've already got that. The thing that happened just before the law came in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, Read Exodus chapter 19 where God says to his people, I've chosen you, I've redeemed you, you are my special people, my treasured possession, I've already set my heart upon you, now live like this. We in turn are those people, we have been chosen, we have been called by name, we have been redeemed, we have been declared not guilty, we've been then adopted into a family, then God says, now walk in my ways. And I'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you. I'll give you the word that you can read. I'll give you other believers around you who spur you on, even correct you at times. We are slowly transformed. And we are to deal with sin in all its forms in our lives. In what we say and what we do and what we think. And what we don't say and what we don't do and what we don't think. They're all active. There's sin in our life and we are to deal with it. And this can be a really painful process. And it's the bit that people don't like. People love being declared not guilty. Yes, God's dealt with my past, dealt with my sin, dealt with my shame. My future is secure. They love being restored. Oh, I'm part of this great people. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit's with me. I love that I can know forgiveness and his power and his strength day by day. And then when God says, okay, now we're going to deal with the sin in your life, the muck, suddenly not so happy. But it's a vital part of the process It's a vital part of us becoming more and more like Jesus. And it can be extremely painful. I won't. When you acknowledge your sin, I've had my own things that I've shared with you this year, my own struggles and my own revelation. It can be incredibly painful, but it's also the best thing because God wants to deal with it. God wants to help you. God wants to grow you. 
And if you look at it the wrong way, you'll run from it. If you look at it the right way, you run to it. If I told you all now that there was a guy waiting outside, big guy, strong-looking guy, he was wearing a mask and carrying a knife, and he was coming to cut you, you'd all run out the door as fast as you can to get away from him. But if I said, oh, yeah, I missed a couple of bits out there, the mask he's wearing is a surgical mask, and the knife he's carrying is a scalpel, and there's a cancerous tumor in your body, and he's come to remove it. Which way do you run? Run that way. You run to him. Take me to your team. Knock me out. Get it out of me so I can live in life in fullness and wholeness. And that's what it likes when it comes to repentance of sin and dealing with sin. If you think God's a thug come to beat you up, then you'll just run from him. If you realize he's a surgeon come to heal you, you run to him. And I know now, even as I've been speaking, there's some of you, there's things that have come up in your mind you know you've got to deal with. And I'm asking you now to take to God to bring them towards him, to repent of your sin, to cry out to him, to deal with it yourself. And lastly, I'll just say, as we process this together, as we worship God in just a moment, this is the message we proclaim. This is our message as a church. It was what Micah spoke to the people of God hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years ago, but it's still the same message we proclaim now. There's a king who's come. <laughs> And we're going to make a big fuss for him in the next few weeks, particularly as Christmas comes. He's come to deliver his people from their greatest problem, which is their sin that separates from God. He's come to restore his people into relationship and fellowship with him and one another. And he's come to sanctify his people and make them holy and more like Jesus. And this is the message we take out. That's why we do our Alpha courses, why we proclaim it every Sunday. It's why we make the fuss of things like Christmas and other things. And I just want us to pray for us as we finish that we'll be people who respond to this message personally but then take it out from here to those who don't know. Amen? Do you want to stand? Can the band come back up, please? Maybe you want to just close your eyes, open your hands. There's, there were many aspects there that we spoke about, and God might be speaking to you about many different things. And what I want to implore you now is to respond in faith to him for whatever he's been speaking to you. <laughs> it might be something I said, something I said might have triggered something else that you thought, oh yeah, whatever it is. Come to him. Come to the king. Come to your father in heaven who loves you. Through Christ, by the spirit. And do business with him. Now. If it means repenting of sin, whatever it is, bring that to him now and speak to him about it. Confess it. <laughs> Say it out loud. Receive forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the coming king. We thank you that you were spoken from ancient days. You were the expected, long-awaited Messiah. We thank you that you came to that tiny place, Bethlehem. You came in humility, small and insignificant, but the kingdom you brought in was mighty and powerful. You came to deliver your people from the greatest of enemies, sin. You defeated your foe, death, and the devil, totally. 
Lord God, you restored us to fellowship with you when we were lost and broken. And Lord, you are on a lifelong mission to transform us day by day into the image of your Son. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbly now and we cry out to you for mercy. And we say, God, transform us. If you're bold, pray that prayer. Lord, make me like Jesus. Make me like Jesus. Deal with my sin. Deal with my bad attitudes. Deal with the things in my life. If you want to get specific, get specific. And Lord God, we want to lift up your name and say, you alone are worthy. You alone are the one true God. You alone are King of kings, Lord of lords, mighty one. We love you and we praise you. And God's people said, Amen.